When I was 13 years old, I lived far to the west of here. I lived in Dublin. And when I was 13 years old, it was Christmas time. And I was at my parents' house. To my right was my father's father. To my left, my mother's father. And I remember age 13, that Christmas, my father's father looked down at me. And he said to me, Connor, success is earning more than your father. And as a boy of 13, when a wise man with gray hair and a lot of wrinkles says such a categorical statement, it went straight into my mind into the box called truth. Things accepted. I won't search more for the answer. Success is defined. I can go on, deal with other things. That's not the message for success I'm here to share with you. But that was planted in my brain, and it took me a long time to get it out. At the age of 14, I left Ireland. My father's job moved to Chicago. I left a world where they knew who I was, where I seemed cool in school, to a world where my clothes were different. I spoke the same language, but they didn't understand a word. And I saw a different way of viewing the world. I met teachers that had a different belief about what human potential is. In reality, my friends at school in Ireland, if their father was a carpenter, their wish was to follow on. If their father was a bus driver, that was most likely what the son believed they would grow up to do. When I moved to Chicago, age 14, I was blown away by the belief that these children had over what one human life could do to affect our world. And I met a teacher who changed my life. He taught biology, but the core of his class had nothing to do with the textbook of biology. It's one anecdote I remember very clearly. It was early in the term. I was still the new guy in class. We'd handed in a homework. And Mr. Matz, biology teacher, on the Monday was giving back the homeworks. And he was going down the aisles. And American high school looks just like the movies. So it really did look just like the movies. Mr. Matz was coming down the aisle and putting our homework on each table. And when he reached to my table, he put the page. And as he moved on, I took it and I turned it over. And at the top of this homework, he had written 11 out of 10. 11 out of 10. As a boy from Ireland, looking at this, I knew that he had made a mistake. I knew that there don't exist 11s out of 10. I knew that I needed to go and let Mr. Matz know of this grave mistake. I was worried about how the school grading system would cope with such an error. But it took me all the way through Monday, all the way through Tuesday, it was probably Wednesday that I got up the courage 
at a moment in class to walk up to Mr. Matt's desk. And I walked up with this rare 11 out of 10 homework. And I approached Mr. Matt's and I said, Mr. Matt's, um, I think you've made a mistake. It, it's out of 10 and you've given me 11. And Mr. Matt's in this moment looked me straight into the eye and he said, 10 was for the best I had expected. What you have done goes far beyond what I expected for this homework. This is not a mistake. You deserve 11. And this messed with my mind. I, at the age of 14, had school sorted. It was figured out. You figure out what the rules are. You meet them and you get your grade sufficient to carry on. And this just left me messed up. There's a grade beyond an A. In fact, the A is arbitrary. It's somebody else's idea. It doesn't mean I have to stop there. And this is the school system that I lived in the US. And these were the kids that were around me. There's, for 30 years, the US has doubled the GDP growth rate of Europe. And there's times when they say it's got to do with it's a bigger economy, 300 million people. There's times that they say it's one language, one language to sell to all of these people. In Europe, we have to speak new languages to cross 200 miles. But I believe all of that growth is held in the belief that teachers give in to kids at school. If I, I live in Barcelona, and if I was to stand up on a stage like this in Barcelona and say, I have an idea, I've found a niche that is unserved. There is no website yet selling food for beaver owners. I would get about that reaction. What an idiot. Where did you come with this? But I guarantee if I stood up on a stage in Chicago or New York, there's a few people going, he's right. There is no website selling to beaver owners. And I'd probably learn a lesson pretty quickly. There's a good reason why there's no website. But I'd have built a website. I'd have tried. I'd have spoken to a few people. I'd have discovered that it's hard to find beaver owners. And maybe I'd switch. In the USA, in the southern United States, we have the Rocky Mountains and an area at the south of the USA called the Great Plains. And the Rocky Mountains are the Great Rocky Mountains. And of course, being USA, these are called the Great Plains. And in the Great Plains, there aren't just storms. There are great storms. And these great storms start over the Atlantic Ocean and they move always to the west. And in the Great Plains, there are two huge herds of animal. There are the buffalo. Buffalo have evolved for millions of years to be perfectly adapted to this part of the world. 400 years ago, another animal was brought. 400 years ago, the Europeans, as they settled, they brought with them another animal, the cow. And on these great plains, 
what you see are great herds of buffalo mixed with great herds of cow. The cows are not adapted. When the great storms appear over the Atlantic Ocean, start to form clouds and they turn gray, the cows and the buffalo know what's coming. And when these clouds start to form, do you know what the cows do? They start to run. Anyone who's ever seen a cow run knows it is not a fast nor graceful process. These clouds, the black clouds, the cows know what's coming, pain. And the clouds start to form, the cows start to run. The clouds keep moving, the cows keep running. The clouds eventually are right overhead and the first hailstones, size of golf balls, start to pound the cows' bums. The clouds continue. Do you know what the cows do? They keep running. And anyone with a little bit of physics will see that by keeping running while the clouds move overhead, they extend the pain to the maximum possible. What do the buffalo do while these cows are running? What do the buffalo do? So the buffalo sees the cloud forming over the ocean. The buffalo, they eat grass. The clouds start to get dark and black and they begin their move. The cows are running. The buffalo eat grass. The clouds are now coming close. All the cows have run into the distance. The buffalo eating grass. But when the first hailstone hits the first buffalo, the buffalo as a huge herd turn face into the storm and run directly into the storm, charging through the storm, reducing the pain to the minimum possible. When I give seminars, when I teach, I see in the audience what I call buffalo hearts. When I'm teaching, usually it's the front rows and in the back we have to encourage some of those cow hearts to take on a buffalo heart courage. But I can see in this hall, and I've seen how you reacted to the music, how you've reacted to the other speakers, this is a hall full of buffalo courage. I do not see cows as I stare into the faces. There's no moo. Courage. Courage. Aristotle said courage is the first virtue because without it, no other virtues stand. Without courage to trust, without courage to give your kid the opportunity to try something, without courage to say that you've been wrong, without courage to give someone else the possibility to fail, to grow, without the courage that Serge talked about of his teacher to throw him into the middle of the, of the pool, it takes courage to push others to take a risk they wouldn't do themselves. It takes courage to play as a musician up here on the stage. It takes courage when Misha came out and played violin in front of us. 
Now, courage is the first virtue. But it's an easy thing to talk about courage. It's an easy thing for me to stand up here and talk about courage, although I can guarantee it's much nicer just down, the here, down here than standing up. But life is guaranteed to give you blows. This is the guarantee of life. Just when you've got everything in balance, a blow is guaranteed. And five years ago, I was an entrepreneur with a successful company. And in August of 2008, Lehman Brothers went down. September was not a good month for my business. October was a terrible month. And courage in those times was a lot harder. I remember Ken Blanchard, the author of The One Minute Manager, came to Barcelona in October of 2008. And he spoke to 40 entrepreneurs. And his talk, three things that leaders must do in times of crisis. We've heard those messages. Leaders, beacon of hope. Leaders, maintain optimism. Leaders, maintain people connected. And after this speech, I had the opportunity to have lunch with Ken Blanchard. And his speech I agreed with. And his speech, while I was listening, I was thinking, 29 days every month, I wake up in the morning and I go into the office and I can be a beacon of hope. 29 days out of every 30, I wake up and I feel optimistic and I feel like looking at people and saying, how are you? And listening. And I had Ken Blanchard just in front of me in the meal. And at a pause, I looked at him and I said, Ken, you lead a company of 450 people. You've given a wonderful talk on what leadership is in times of crisis. I, I get that. I know what that looks like. I know how to do it. But Ken, does it ever happen to you that you wake up one morning and it's somebody else's turn? It's not my turn. It's somebody else's turn today. I pushed yesterday, the day before, the whole week. I've pushed for a whole month. It's time for someone else just to push for a day. I'll be back tomorrow. And Ken, he was 83 at the time, and I remember he was sat just in front of me. And as I said to Ken, have you ever had this day? He leant back, <laughs> a bit like Yoda from Star Wars. He looked me in the eyes and he said, start the day slowly. And he said, when he wakes up in the morning, when Ken Blanchard, 83 years old, global success, when he wakes up in the morning, before the alarm gets him out of his bed, before he checks his mobile, before he grabs his email to check, he sits on the edge of the bed and first he puts his hands, palms down, on his legs. 
and he listens. He listens to the noise in his head. He listens to his body, pain in the shoulder, sore, a bit more here than should be. And he listens. What people are running through my head? What was in my dreams? Just listening. It might take four, five, six minutes. And when he feels that he's heard what his body has to say, what's running through his mind, he turns his hands, palms up, puts them back, and he asks himself, at the end of the day today, what do I want to be grateful for? And he waits. And when the answer comes, he gets up. An email takes over, and the phone takes over, and the things of the day take over. But he said, with those 10 minutes, starting the day slowly, he connects back to why being a beacon of hope, why looking people in the eyes and seeing how they really are feeling behind the words that they're saying. And when he told me that, I thought, this is it every morning. Next morning, what do you think happened? Alarm went, snooze. Alarm went again, snooze. Now urgent, running. Even today, I rarely manage more than one or two days in any given week. But I guarantee, when you wake up and it's not today, it's one day out of 30 that today it's someone else's turn, that inside yourself you just don't find the energy this recipe that Ken Blanchard gave to me of just sitting and listening to yourself and when you've heard yourself, taking a moment to ask yourself that one question. At the end of the day today, what do I want to be grateful for? Oh, courage. It's not an easy thing. And Nick and... The orchestra chose the next piece of music because Chopin, more than almost any conductor, was courageous.